Hey there, this is Thomas Manning, and on this special episode of Meet Me in the Movies Open Dialogue, I'm excited to be sharing with you my recent conversation with film composer Tom Hokenborg, who you may also know as Junkie XL. A lot of this discussion focuses specifically on his work with George Miller on 3,000 Years of Longing, but we also look back at his career from the past 10 to 15 years or so and talk about some of the other phenomenal filmmakers he's worked with. I think Tom, whenever he works on a project, he leaves such an indelible mark with his music, and it was really a privilege to have this time to talk with him. I really appreciate you watching and listening, and I hope you enjoy. Awesome. Uh, so I read that uh, the main melody for 3,000 Years of Longing took two years for you to create. Um, so can you discuss that timeline a little bit? You know, you're welcome to go into as much detail as you'd like or discuss it very generally, because I know that's a lot of ground for you to cover. But, you know, I saw that note that it took two years to develop that. And I just wanted to give you a chance to speak on that a little bit. Yes, because um, uh, George and I started talking about um, this movie as far back as 2018. And uh, somewhere in 2019, he, um, he shared the script with me. Um, I think it was around August or something. And um, besides the fact that uh, George and I work, but accidentally the poster is like right there, um, uh, Mad Max. But um, so we've been working together since 2013. And besides the working relationship, we also, became really good friends. So we we are on a bi-monthly uh, contact anyway, you know, to talk about various things in life. And um, so that's why I was uh, way ahead of the curve, you know, what was coming and he was talking about it like very passionately. And um, so somewhere in the beginning of 2020, just before COVID, um, we started um, to work on this thing. And what we agreed on was that we were looking for one melody that was able to carry the whole film. And um, a melody that could transform uh, from bitter anguish, uh, very emotional, heartbreaking to, you know, a love story. One melody that can do all that. And, uh, and that is catchy enough that when you walk out of the theater, like it, you're still kind of humming it in your head because also the movie is ending with it. Also with the great collaboration with uh, Matteo. And um, um, so yeah, then the, the, the big thing started how to craft a melody like this. And uh, so George and I talked about it and normally when I send something to a director, I would send something that is completely fleshed out, you know, just like with a, a full arrangement or anything. And we both agreed, just like, let's not do that because it's gonna mask any potential issues with the melody by itself. You know, if you look at it in the eye as naked as possible, you know what is wrong about it. And so I started writing one melody and then another melody. And so we both came to the conclusion, it's like, oh, this section is really cool, but that section is definitely not working and constantly against the light of what this melody needed to accomplish. And um, somewhere in September, um, reiteration like 80 or something like that, um, 
we felt we got something really close and then we were fine-tuning it together um, by having a Zoom session like you and me right now. And I would sit behind the piano and I would play this thing. And then halfway through, George would say, stop. And it's like, something is not connecting for me here, but then the rest is great. And then sitting behind the piano, you know, we would just like figure this out. And then eventually we had something by the beginning of October that we thought, oh, this could really work. Um, we decided let's live with this for a little bit. And so after a few weeks, we got to back together. And uh, George said, this is, this is it. Um, what is really interesting though, that he, he, he gave me like the most horrible task that you can give a composer. And that is that he said to me, if I play this thing before I go to bed on my iPhone, I put the phone away and I wake up in the morning and I'm able to sing the melody, then I know it's a good melody. Wow. Well, that's a horrible thing to ask. Oh yeah. <laughs> of, a, of a composer. But um, it was again, like a really great collaboration. And um, then I started turning it into arrangements. And what was really interesting is that, and so the scene with Solomon, when he comes to court and he plays his harped uh, instrument, that piece of music was completely finished before they started shooting. So he actually performed and the, the audience, um, as far as they were actually real people on the set, they, they uh, performed uh, to that piece of music what was happening at a certain point. Then some of the other pieces I finished as well. And um, he played those sections extensively to the actors. It's like, this will be the music for this particular scene. Um, and, um, you know, he really wanted to do it like that. And um, it, it, which is interesting because it, it recalls like um, back some great memories of the collaboration between Ennio Morricone and Sergio Leone, where, you know, much of the music was actually composed on forehand and Sergio Leone would, play things on set or he would play them to, to, to the actors as like, okay, this is the mind, the musical mindset that you're in um, for the emotion or for the, the intenseness of the scene. And so it was really great to work like that. And, um, and so we had like four, five, six moments in the film where that melody plays in various different arrangements. And the rest of the movie was basically filled with you know, some light percussion, some light sound design, but even the sound design was derived from the main melody played on uh, a duduk and, a, and a, a viola and a violin. And um, it was a very interesting process, but um, working with George is always intense and it always takes time. And um, I love that because um, not only do you grow uh, as um, in a working relationship, but you also grow as uh, friends and you develop like um, so much uh, respect for each other. And uh, and this again was like one of those incredible experiences. And now we're working on Furiosa, which is the prequel to uh, to Mad Max. And it, it goes through the same process again. Yeah, and obviously uh, Fury Road compared to 3,000 Years of Longing, those are two very different films 
when you look at them from the outside, but uh, can you maybe compare those experiences and, you know, collaborating with George on those projects and, you know, comparisons and then you know, similarities and differences between your experience there? Well, in outsets, it's, um, they're, they're very different movies, right? Like um, what meets the eye, you know, when you sit in the theater, but um I wouldn't say that Mad Max has like um, um, is like a love story in the in the in the common sense of the word, but um, it is the love of Furiosa for the place where she grew up, you know, the green place, and to and to, and to look for that. Um, Alethea, the scholar in this movie, has also been looking for that. You know, it's 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 not like an action sequence to the green place and then find out it doesn't exist and then come back. Um, but um, both female characters are clearly looking for something that um, that they want. And um, and what is interesting because Alethea in 3000 years, you know, she's a scholar in um, mystery and storytelling. And so it, it, it's interesting that, uh, or mythology, I should say, and uh, it's interesting that she listens to all these stories of the jinn uh, about love as if she heard, hears it for the first time, you know, herself. And then with her first wish is, I want you to fall in love with me, which is like a really interesting twist in uh, the 3000 Years of Longing movie. Um, obviously there is no, action sequences in the 3000 years of longing. I mean, yes, there's some flashbacks, but um, when the meat of the film is about like, what is love? What is the definition of love? But to a certain extent also um, heroism to, uh, to give up what you want so badly if you see that the other person is suffering and, uh, and she does that. And uh, so for me, that is like, um, a similar heroic act as what uh, Furiosa makes in uh, in Mad Max, where there's a clear goal to go somewhere, but they're going to lose people along the way. And the heroism that comes with that to see it all the way through to the end and eventually see uh, Immortan die. Um, you know, there's similarities. George has always said to me, I make all these different movies, but they're all the same, you know, and, and for him, um, um, Pick of the City is like the same as Happy Feet. In a way, it's the same as Mad Max. In a way, it's the same as 3,000 Years of Longing. Like, uh, we had some interesting discussions about that. Yeah. I love that. I love that quote from George there. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Meet Me the Movies, an open dialogue special. We are talking with Tom Hokenborg, a.k.a. Junkie XL, about his work on 3,000 Years of Longing. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll be right back. Won't you come and meet me at the movies? Won't you come and watch it? Hi, and welcome back into Meet Me in the Movies Open Dialogue Special. We are chatting 3,000 Years of Longing with Tom Hokenborg, also known as Junkie XL, and also talking about his career in the film industry as an incredible composer and producer and musician thank you so much for watching and listening let's get right back to the conversation yeah 
And um, I also want to give you the chance to talk about um, creating the song A Cautionary Tale, which you uh, mentioned a little bit earlier with uh, Bocelli. And it's really a beautiful piece of music. And I think Mateo's voice um, blends so incredibly with your arrangement. So what was that collaborative process like? And, um, you know, I know the song itself is really capsule to the entire film. I'm sure that you felt kind of the weight and importance of getting that right. You're, you're correct. I mean, um, if I may, um, if there's a couple of things I would like to uh, mention about um, the music in this film, and then I'll get to the end title. I said, if Solomon is to appear at Sheba's court, and he's going to play something that is going to be so enchanting that it's going to be almost impossible for Sheba to resist uh, Solomon. We need to create an atmosphere in which we have to believe that Sheba actually listened to music for the very first time in her life. And it, she would perceive that as a miracle. So I said to George, what if we left the first 20 minutes of the music of the film without music? I know we're all uh, jaded, you know, we listen to stuff all day, you know, we hear like music blasting in, in grocery stores and in, in fashion stores and it's on streets and it's in the subway, it's everywhere. Um, but let's just pretend that for 20 minutes, we're not listening to any music. And then when Solomon plays that theme for the first time, we feel somewhat a similar sensation as to what Shiba is feeling uh, about this about this melody. Um, then I mentioned to George, and now I get to the theme song. Um, can we do something as it was as brilliantly executed on Titanic, where the theme is everywhere in the movie, and then the song is the theme, but now with words. And he said, I think that's a great idea. He um, he already was thinking about um, Matteo because he's acting in the film, you know, to 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 sing this part. And um, so I really, from, from my point of view, at first I attacked the uh, arrangement that he was really singing the thematic melody as we hear it, you know, through the through the film and now with words. And so in the beginning, um, George wrote some lyrics in 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 English, and then we had uh, Michael Bocelli, um, uh, Matteo, sorry, uh, record it, and um, and we talked about it, and I said. I feel that the words are too much on the nose, you know, just like English is a language that we all understand, but actually what we're looking at from the eyes of the jinn and the story that the jinn is telling, because he was always, and he will always be, that it seems like such a slice in time, which is 2020, where the English words are perfectly picked for, you know, whatever people want to hear in 2020, shouldn't it be something that is more abstract and then even bizarre extra abstract? And then George came with the idea to record it in really old languages and even like uh, languages that we technically don't know how they actually were spoken, you know, thousands of years ago, but some scholars know most likely what the sounds were and what you know, combination of words that were made, Aramaic. 
And so George worked with a scholar or two, as far as I understood, uh, to come up with um, uh, lyrics for the song that had the jest uh, of what he was writing in English, but now it's all sung in these ancient languages. And uh, eventually we end up a little bit in, uh, in English to really create that time frame that the movie has, 3,000 years. And uh, you've been described as a full contact composer. Um, so can you kind of take a minute to talk about how this influences your technique and procedures in developing new music and, I, and specifically how it was significant in the production of 3,000 years? When I, when I call myself uh, a full contact uh, composer, um, I mean that um, I want to have something in my hands, you know, just like I'm not the type of composer that sits here with like, a, you know, sheet music and, and, a, and a pen and just writes everything out and it's done or sit all day in front of a computer and just figure it out in the computer. Um, I need to have guitars, bass guitars. I, I make my own equipment i make sometimes my own instruments uh, or i have uh, exuberant uh, instruments being built for me uh, you know just uh, like i did for king kong the, the insane big uh, bass drum um, create unique instruments where i make sounds with uh, for instance for three 300 years of um um, 300 Rise of an Empire, not 300 years, 300 Rise of an Empire. And so for every movie, I have like um, various different things that I uniquely do for that film. And, um, and in this case, um, I used a lot of like um, outboard boxes that I built myself to create sound design of the recorded themes um, I played percussion myself, I played some bass sounds myself. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of it that is like physical contact with like a, a real instrument. I cannot emphasize enough that um, I don't want to get too uh, scientific on you, but um, when, when you hold an instrument and when you hold a violin, for instance, um, um, things are resonating through your body because you're in contact with something that's really acoustic. And when you're sitting behind a computer, even if you play an acoustic piano that sounds absolutely amazing, you you miss that contact with with a real acoustic instrument, something that vibrates, that puts your body into motion, and um, it's uh, it's incredible. With with the most important instrument is the human voice. It's like it it does so much for you. I mean, that's why they're. Uh, Tibetan monks meditate while they're singing these multiple harmonic uh, notes. You know, just like it does something to your system. Not only does it make you write better music if you sing your piece of music or you can play it on a violin or you can play it on an acoustic guitar. It's an enormous piece of uh, power that comes to your arsenal of, of uh, um tools to, to write great music. And that's why I call myself a full contact composer because that is key to do all these things like physically. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure that connects some to your background as a classically trained musician. And uh, from what I understand, I started out pretty young. Uh, can you maybe share a little bit about how 
you know, your childhood learning to play classic classical instruments at a young age, did that at all influence uh, your approach to uh, the score on 3000 years? Well, I've been lucky to come from um, uh, a musical family. My my dad was like uh, a non-trade musician and he played the, the, the harmonica. He would take me to a film, come back, grab his harmonica and then play the main theme. He just remembered it and he knows immediately how to play it. My mom could not improvise at all. She was really like a scholar. You know, she studied like violin. She studied piano. She gave lessons. Um, and uh, so I had a bit of both. And um, I started playing instruments since I was four. And um, I had lessons on all these different instruments. And then when I was 14, I started working in a music store uh, selling the first digital instruments that came out, you know, like we're talking 1983, 1984. And that became part now of my arsenal as well. And um, I started developing it, developing it. And at a certain point, I started studying music more. Um, and then obviously I had this whole electronic music career where I developed uh, techniques on my own to create like really weird sounds and unique sounds with all the tools available, whether it is acoustic or it's like electronic. And um, I even uh, developed my own software at this point, you know, to to create sounds in the most unique way. And uh, it, it's been a long history of experimentation and making lots of mistakes, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, like we all do, and um, but you you create an interesting um, tool set that you always have with you. You know, it's like oh, I know how to do this. Oh, I know how to do that. And you worked on such a wide variety of projects and worked with a lot of great filmmakers over your career. You know, you've been connected in one form or another to filmmakers like. Christopher Nolan, Zack Snyder, uh, Robert Rodriguez, Peter Jackson, James Cameron, you know, names like that. And each of these are unique and visionary artists um, in their own right. But what have you continued to learn about yourself from this career of working on you know, such a variety of creative ventures and working with different creative minds across this time? Well, it... Every time when I get in a room with either one of these directors that you mentioned, including George Miller, uh, and also I would like to add uh, Tim Miller, not related, that I did uh, Deadpool with, um, it's like it's like film scoring, you know, 2.0. And um, I go to class with these wonderful directors and I'm getting paid to, to go to class. You know, it's like, uh, it, it, it's wonderful. And... Each director has taught me various aspects of how to look at a scene. And every director has a different approach and it's so interesting. And so when you work on um, a new film, sometimes I approach a scene a certain way. And then the director in question that I work with would be like, how did you come up with that? And I said like, well, you know, I had lots of conversations with Peter Jackson, how he would attack a scene like that. Or this is something I learned from Zack Snyder, or this is something I learned from Robert Rodriguez. And so it's it's um, it's incredible because as a composer, you're, you've worked with all these people and you take all that knowledge in and you take it to your next film and to your next film. And um, it, it's, it's, it's especially the learning process that's so fascinating for me. 
and that comes also with lots of dialogue. Like you cannot score a movie successfully unless you have so much dialogue with the director on forehand. Uh, George and I have uh, a practical joke that actually comes from a book written by somebody uh, on this matter, not not regarding film scoring. Um, but let's say you have four conversations before you start a project. And then a third person would say, did you actually discuss the project? And the answer is no, we talked about everything, but actually not about the project. And what is interesting about that is you get to learn each other so well by talking about all these other things that actually the project at hand becomes less important to talk about because you now know that other person really well. You now know most likely what that person is looking for. And that is a really interesting uh, way of looking at it. And most of the conversations that I have with people go about everything, but not necessarily always about the project in question. What a lovely day. Yeah, most definitely. Um, well, again, Tom, it really has been a privilege to uh, chat with you today. Uh, you know, well, Tom, I wish we had more time, but I know there's a lot in your schedule today. But uh, once again, um, really, really thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. And hopefully we get a chance down the line to speak again about one of your future projects. And, uh, you know, congrats on this film and uh, looking forward to seeing where things shape up from here. Thank you so much, man. Enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Have, Have a great, great day. You too. Yo, bye. Well, thank you so much to Tom Hokenborg for joining us here on this Meet Me in the Movies Open Dialogue special. I am Thomas Manning, and it was wonderful to talk to Tom about 3,000 Years of Longing and his career in the film industry. Thank you so much for watching and listening, and we'll see you next time on Meet Me in the Movies. Many films to view Until we meet again Next time we see you Gladly fill you in We'll tell about the happy and the sad ones We'll talk about the good ones and the bad ones Many films to view Till we meet again